You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. Joining me today is Shannon Scott. Shannon is a product director at Tech Unicorn Airwallex. And today we're going to be discussing Shannon's experience and the role of product management. Welcome to the Product Edge, Shannon. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Jade. Great to be here. Fantastic. And how is stage four lockdown treating you? Um, look, it could be worse. I, I really feel for a lot of people um, in Melbourne right now and certainly in other parts of the world. Uh, I think I'm kept very busy at the moment and, and that's really important. Absolutely. It's a a strange time for a lot of us. But uh, like you said, you know, um, yeah, we're we're still very fortunate in Australia. So Shannon, before we um, jump into it, can you tell us a little bit about Airwallex for those that may not know who Airwallex are? Yeah, sure. It's actually um, a a surprise or a a curious circumstance that so few people know about Airwallex because they are one of the fastest growing Australian unicorns and, and there aren't very many. Uh, in Australia. But I mean, one of the things that really excites me about Airwallex is it does feel like one of those Silicon Valley unicorns that has um, a really tremendous trajectory ahead of it. Um, What they're actually doing is facilitating global payments. So um, as the economy becomes increasingly globalized, uh, certainly as we move to more um, e-commerce and a lot of uh, purchases internationally or, or payments to large tech companies in the US, for example, there's a much greater need for foreign currency payments, um, where in the past there's been, I think, a lack of options or very high margins by, by banks or very slow turnarounds in moving money um, internationally. So Airlocks is really about reducing the friction in uh, global payments. Fantastic. And you would have joined Airwallets March this year. So around the time that Australia went into the first lockdown, how, how was that? Yeah, I guess I'm part of uh, Generation Lockdown uh, when it comes to employees <laughs> working remotely. Uh, actually, the first day I joined Airwallex was the first day that we as a company decided to work from home, and, and that has been the case um, over the past six months or so uh, since I joined. Um, wow. it, it's far from ideal. Uh, I think there are certain things you learn by osmosis in, in working with people around uh, the office, but you know, there are ways to accommodate it. And in a sense, it levels the playing field. We have uh, a very large um, office in Shanghai. We have people in London, Singapore, and the US. So sort of forcing yourself to think about, you know, how am I going to collaborate effectively remotely um, really also aids those groups, interacting with those groups that uh, you were always remote with in another country anyway. Okay, so have you had the privilege, I guess, of going into the office at all, or you've been 100% remote since joining? I, I have seen the office. We have a beautiful <laughs> office uh, in Melbourne CBD. Um, I, I've met a, a small number of people face to face, and and when we're allowed, um, you know, we've uh, we've done some joint exercise with uh, with peers and things, and, and talked through uh, business items. But um, there's been few and far between, and certainly right now, trying to respect uh, the quite restrictive. Mm. Um, requirements around stage four. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a plan to return to the office 
anytime soon or you're just waiting to see sort of government directions? Yeah, look, we're very much taking a wait and see approach right now, but there's not a, a strong impetus for us to go back. So like, I think um, we are functioning well as a business. Um, we're still seeing tremendous growth and, and productivity. We're still uh, hiring very aggressively. Um, and, and so there's, there's not a lot of obstacles for us to continue to do our business function. Um, we do need to think about how to uh, create some some certainty for our staff um, but I think right now we're optimizing on flexibility I don't see us going back into the office until at best sort of early next year and if you know staff want to sort of come up with other arrangements um, in the medium term I think that would be totally fine as well um, some of my uh, family lives in northeast Victoria in Bright I think I'd love to go back uh, there and I'm, I'm allowed to and spend a few few weeks uh, working remotely in a nice rural area and, and getting some cycling in as well. So, so sometimes we can take advantage of this, um, this isolation too. Absolutely. It sounds, uh, sounds idyllic. Bit of cycling in the countryside, they're the good days to look forward to, I guess. Yeah. Yes. So Shannon, your career is really interesting and, and not typical of a, I guess what you might call a traditional PM. You've been at the intersection of business and technology without, I guess, formally holding the, the PM title. You know, looking at your, your career to date, you were the first employee for an enterprise analytics company, Palantir, who I'm sure we'll discuss shortly. They've been in the news a lot lately. And you've had numerous roles, including software engineer, business development, and, and general management. Give us an overview of, of your career to date. Probably the most pertinent point here is that in 2005, um, software was not particularly sexy. You know, startups weren't really a thing. Uh, the iPhone hadn't been released. Um, I did do an engineering degree at, at Melbourne University because I was strong at engineering. Um, and, and that was sort of my interest at the time, but it wasn't a particularly desirable uh, industry. Um, and all of the, um, the smart peers uh, in, my, in my time at university were typically going into other industries. And I think consulting, uh, for example, was um, an industry that was like sweeping up some of the best engineering talent because the alternative options in the market were perhaps um, even working at... Uh, you know, Holden here in Fisherman's Bend or an oil and gas company, for example. And so a lot of people were moving more into the business side and, and that was something that I, I seriously considered doing. Um, fortunately, I think I found a, a very small software uh, company. Um, they built software around uh, the insurance industry, but they sort of recognised that consulting was quite sexy at the time and pitched themselves as a consulting company despite the fact they were a, a software company. Um, but the reason they did this was because their software was also very sophisticated and so they needed to uh, work very closely with those insurers to say, yeah, we've built, we've built this software. We, you know, our software engineering team has come up with this analytic solution, um, but now we will help you actually deploy it into your business and, and make sure that you can get the most out of this software and, and it can have a, a, a strong impact on, on your, your business and um, your day-to-day -day operations. And so this required both the software engineering um, skills I think the analytic ability and understanding like what this software was actually trying to achieve and then the sort of communication and delivery skills required to actually uh, embed it into and make it successful within the business. Now, um, scrolling forward uh, to, to Palantir, which I, was, I think I was very fortunate to, uh, to come across in 2008. Um, they were a very small startup at the time. Um, they were looking for an employee in Australia to work with the um, 
some customers in the Australian government. Um, and it was very much the same problem. It was around taking sophisticated data analytics solution and actually making sure it was successful within the enterprise it was being delivered. And so this means understanding um, that company's data sources, understanding their way of working, understanding their goals, and making sure we were building technology around those goals. Um, and so this is really where the, the hybrid sort of engineering understanding and the business understanding came together for me. And I think that really has been sort of the backbone of my career since, since university. Yeah, fascinating. So how does a software engineer move into business development and, and that type of role? Well, I think actually um, we didn't have a choice. Um, okay. <laughs> and I think like there are certainly software developers, um, and I mean them no disrespect, but you do want to sort of keep them in the basement, keep them, keep them on Red Bull, um, and, and they're very happy with the, the, the music in their headphones and, and off they go. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are other software engineers who um, have a little bit more interest in sort of interacting with the customer or understanding the business problem. Um, and I think Palantir was an example of a company that was very comfortable putting um, both of these types of engineers in front of the customer to demonstrate um, credibility in our core competency. And that was software engineering. So um, instead of basically putting a salesperson in the loop and, and um, having them uh, take you out to dinner um, or you know, create a great relationship with you to try and, try and sell this platform, we wanted to sort of put that to the side. We knew we were never going to impress you with our um, charisma. And so, um, and so instead we'd say, hey, we're, look, we're, we're software engineers, um, but we want to understand your problems and uh, we're going to establish credibility this way by, by just being the strongest that we can in the technology that will serve you. Absolutely. And in a previous episode, I was talking to Josh Sentner from PageUp and he was describing how he looks for product managers that are essentially, you know, as good as the salespeople when it comes to selling and understanding the product. And I think a lot of PMs don't consider themselves salespeople or, you know, perhaps sometimes lack empathy for the other um, areas and, and teams that they interact with, whether that is engineering or sales or, or marketing. And I think having that unique blend is, is a really unique skill and definitely something I think product managers would benefit from if they, you know, invested the time to, to get those skills and experiences? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the blend is important, but the, you, you know, your core superpower is the most important thing. And so, you know, if you're a software engineer and, and that is your true strength, that is, that is wonderful. If you also um, have an interest in the sales side, have an interest in the product design side, I'd love to sort of migrate you that way. Um, you know, let's let's double down on your your true strength, and perhaps you join this organisation as a software engineer. Um, but as we learn, different engineers have sort of different micro skills within this uh, core competency. Then we can sort of start to migrate you or get you more involved in sales, in, in product, um, even in recruiting, because you know you you have credibility in your engineering skills to attract other strong engineers. Absolutely, and I love that you used the the concept of superpower. Do you think that product management is increasingly becoming more broad, and that you're meant to be a bit of a um, jack of all trades, potentially master of of none? Do you think PMs should really focus in and harness on what their individual superpower is? Yes. Um, now, I want you to put your best foot forward. And I think that is going to be, you know, you're like, that is going to give you the best opportunity at success. I mean, if you are 
Um, now, perhaps there's going to be circumstances where you just do need a salesperson that um, like is just very good at convincing other people to do something. And, and you know, as a, as, a, as a generalist, you're never going to succeed at that anyway. Um, but as a, like, but if you, if you are very competent as a, as a software engineer, um, or perhaps you just have an insight for, for what users are looking for, um, then I think that is going to afford you the opportunity to open doors to get more involved in, in other things you might be interested in. So um, I think it's great to be a generalist, but I think typically when I'm looking at uh, recruiting, um, I want to try and hire people who are who can demonstrate to me raw talent in, in certain areas. And I, and I think that's where we can go deep. That's where you can be most credible. Um, so let's try and leverage that skill to the greatest extent possible. And then prepare... Um, I think we can sort of navigate to places that uh, um, can extend your skills um, and can sort of leverage both the superpower and um, the other aspects of the business that we need to build upon. Okay. So what does product management look like in Airwallex? Um, well, actually, the really fascinating thing and, and uh, you know, often when I'm talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a product manager and people sort of talk about, you know, breaking down the problem and, and sort of eliciting all the requirements and, and using data to drive decisions and understanding users. Um, I don't really feel like I'm doing any of that at AOLX right now. I, I really feel like I'm trying to uh, keep as many balls in the air as we grow this business as quickly as possible um, and, and try and sort of navigate to... Um, the most effective outcome given the circumstances we have today. And I'd really love the idea of being able to sort of sit down and, and sort of cleanly focus on exactly this problem and, and talk to all the users about how to solve it. Um, and in many circumstances, I just don't have the luxury or the time to do that. So when I think about what it means uh, to be a product manager today in a, uh, a rapid uh, scaler um, is really about constantly keeping an eye on where we want to take the business long term and then filling in all the blanks that we need to uh, to get there as quickly as possible. And so to me, this is much more around sort of a, um, a, a deeply strategic role and, and deeply around understanding where we want to take the business more like an entrepreneur um, rather than just focusing on the delivery of an individual product, for example. Yeah. Okay. And I think, you know, a lot of product managers, they do look to the Air Wallaxes and, you know, the, the Atlassians and, and the safety cultures of the world, those high growth, you know, tech unicorns, and, and it looks sexy and it's exciting. Um, but it's also, you need to understand what it takes to work in those type of environments. And a PM that has come from a traditional enterprise environment may not thrive and or succeed in, in those environments. What, what does it take to, to succeed and thrive in a high growth startup? Yeah, I think it's sort of a, a recognition that, that that flexibility is going to be required. And, you know, coming back to our sort of discussion earlier about superpowers versus generalists, um, this is where the generalist element is going to shine, but we can't actually predict what we're going to need next. Um, and so this is going to create quite a, what, what will seem like quite a chaotic environment. Um, it's going to require a lot of context switching. Um, it's going to require sort of a lot of variability in the hours you work, for example, because we just can't neatly package it into a nine to five job. Um, but I think people who are very open-minded about, and, and uh, I still find it very exciting to think about, you know, how do I grow this business? Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. broad statement um, it's not about like how do I fit my skills or or how do I focus on products it's just how do I build this business um, 
And in doing that, it's going to open up so many opportunities for you, so many different areas and experiences for you to learn, um, sometimes quite high-pressure experiences that are going to make you learn very quickly. And as we continue to scale, those experiences are going to evolve, which I think keeps it very uh, interesting and exciting. I think that's why I spent, you know, 11 years at Palantir um, before I before I sort of uh, felt the need to move somewhere else because as the company grew so quickly and as we expanded into different geographies, um, it just created so many new opportunities for me to have new experiences and to, to build on my own skills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what do you think makes a great product manager? I think specifically around, um, you know, what are those what are those core skills? Obviously, we talked about you know, there's going to be a lot of um, sort of generalist requirements or, or things, new, new problems that, that come out of areas that you're not familiar with. Um, but I think it's really about understanding the why behind what you're trying to achieve um, and aligning your incentives with that of the growth of the business. So um, the why is, you know, if someone says, hey, I need, to, I need this product or I need this feature, um, or, you know, this is, this is what we've got on the roadmap, I really want to make sure that I understand why we're doing that, why that feature is important, and understand, like, what else we could be doing to then ensure that we're actually working on the right thing and that I'm, that I'm um, building against the right goals rather than just sort of executing on something that's been asked of me. Um, it also, as I, as I sort of take that product and I, I think about the requirements, um, I might be able to think more expansively about what those requirements are, which customers I need to to talk with um, and make sure that I'm not sort of over constraining the problem before I've even, before I've even started. Mm, Um, And then on on top of that, just sort of go on to the the company incentives. I think this sort of bigger, bigger picture of what we're trying to, trying to deliver um, will help you again, make sure that this product is sort of uh, cognizant of the other things that are happening in the business and that you're sort of aware of uh, how it fits into that bigger picture. whether it's the right thing to be working on, how much time you're going to spend working on that feature, how many compromises you're going to make along the way. And that's sort of where it becomes a little less clean, but the North star of like where we're trying to take the business will help inform some of the decisions you make along the way. Absolutely. And a hotly debated topic at the moment in in the product space is around should product managers come from a technical background, meaning engineering software engineering or should they be more commercially focused from from a business background what's your views on on that look i think it comes back to again like depth in understanding or depth in a certain superpower i think engineering is a very clean skill i think software engineering you know if you can if you can build a product from um the ground up and if you can actually understand um how a product is developed you're going to have um an advantage now on the commercial side um, if you come from like a, a very impressive sales background or you have a lot of experience interacting with, with users and um, sort of building or, or understanding the features that people need to build, then, you know, wonderful. I think you're also going to do very well in product management, but I typically find this is a less tractable skill. And so, um, again, I'd, I'd sort of recommend that the person sort of thinks very deeply about what their superpower is as they move into uh, product management. You touched on the why, and I think um, this seems to be something that comes up a lot in my conversations. And you know, bring it back to Simon Sinek's, you know, find your why. Do you think perhaps? 
the why is, is lacking somewhat in, in product for some companies or, or some PMs. And maybe that's why the role isn't as strategic as perhaps you're, you're discussing. I think there are plenty of examples in conventional business where the why is less important because the business is, is fundamentally not changing. Um, I think the business is, is sort of like, for example, uh, an ASX listed company um, in, in Australia, you know, has a certain market cap. It has several thousand employees. Uh, employees move from one role into the nut, into another. Um, they might be releasing new products, which is very exciting. But but ultimately, I think the true growth and the structure of the company is is quite set at this point. Um, and so, you know, if you're moved into a certain role, uh, there's less expectation. You're going to question the why behind this team or this structure, um, and there's sort of less ability to influence it. I think when I, in my entire background has been about companies that are, the goal is to grow the, the company as quickly as possible or the company to become as successful as it possibly can be. Um, and so this totally changes the way that you need to think about uh, product management because uh, it's not just about the individual unit of work you're doing, but it's about all of the units of work behind the business. And all of these units are flexing and growing and changing very quickly. And so you need to understand that. Um, I think the why, the why, why are we building the business? Why are these units changing? Why do we need this sort of flexibility and understanding are very important questions in a high growth company that are less important in a, in a larger enterprise. Um, within the product itself, I think th those questions all still apply, um, but you're sort of training yourself to be really thinking far more holistically in a, in a startup or scale up than you are in a conventional business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I know you like reflecting on the importance of why you're building something and, and you take that a little bit further and, you know, deeply think about the consequences of what you're building will have on the world. And, and you've referenced before, you know, Amazon's disruption of physical retail and Uber Eats impact on restaurant culture. How do we balance the convenience of these services with the impact on local communities and, and local businesses? Like it's a it's a genuinely difficult question to ask, and I think there's certain elements of human nature that aren't going to stop wanting to to innovate and, and build new things for which um, the consequences can't be easily predicted, and also the um, the sort of the, the parties you you leave behind are, are going to sort of be, be difficult to empathise with. And so you know, if it's Uber, for example, I think it's like just in its sort of conventional um, rideshare uh, operations, they were. Uh, making rideshare much more accessible to you know remote remote parts of various cities um, where, where taxis otherwise wouldn't wouldn't operate, which was a really great benefit of of Uber. Um, but they simultaneously sort of uh, decimated the the foundational taxi industry um, and perhaps some of the elements of uh, you know taxi medallions and, and licenses were you know honestly borderline corrupt in the way they were actually being issued and, and managed. Um, but you're still going to have sort of a really significant impact on um, these existing taxi drivers and and sort of like how you are changing the rates in the market, um, how you are sort of impacting, and as we move forward, how Uber is impacting their uh, contracted drivers, for example. Um, and these companies end up, you know, going from uh, you know, really impressive startups and scale-ups to incredibly powerful and influential businesses. Um, and it's a, it's a genuine, genuinely difficult question. As I sort of extrapolate this and, and think about, you know, the sort of Uber Eats part of the brand, 
I, I don't like the idea of this world where um, all of the restaurants on on Chapel Street or Ligon Street start to shut down. They all get moved to warehouses, which are sort of unseen. Um, all of our food gets delivered uh, perhaps by a drone. Um, you know, we all live in apartment complexes. There's sort of like not as much sort of lifestyle and outdoor culture. Um, this concerns me. And actually, despite being somebody who's been in my, uh, who's been in engineering and technology throughout my whole career, I'm a somewhat anti-technology person. And the question about where we should proceed into certain areas, um, how we should approach these problems long-term is a, is a genuinely difficult one. It is. And it's, you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, I, I live in Port Melbourne and was walking down Bay Street yesterday, which is normally a hustling, busy Bay Street with loads of restaurants and cafes and, you know, really good culture and, and vibe. And, and you just see with so much being closed, the shops are closed, cafes, restaurants can only do takeaway. It really has had a big impact on the, the local community and, and just the culture and you can it, it's actually you know you can feel it as you're walking down the street so yes I think um you know thinking about the impact of all this innovation long term is uh, potentially a whole uh, a whole other episode where we get into ethics and uh, and the like absolutely okay so is there anything that you would recommend or suggest for pms you know how how they can consider consequences or the, the impact of what they're building. Is there any, you know, one or two suggestions that you have? Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's absolutely about thinking deeply about, um, you, you know, we, we sort of talked about why am I building this, but, it, but it's also the question marks about like where this can go into the future. And so trying to extrapolate the vision um, and understand the edge cases, uh, thinking outside the box, I think it's a, a genuinely difficult problem. Um, but you know, there's there's certain things you can I think keep in mind from the from the beginning, and I think one of the really sort of uh, hot topics over the past perhaps five years is is data privacy. And um, when I look at companies like Facebook, uh, it was very uh, easy to sort of sign up and say, "Yep, I mean, this this looks like a great um, way for me to interact with my my peers, um, and I'd love to be able to share these photos." Um, and so users were very very comfortable with that about getting on board. Uh, and, and so they were, they were also very comfortable to say, yes, I, I accept the, the agreement. Now, at the time, I think it was very reasonable or, or sort of perhaps a very reasonable conclusion for Facebook to draw that we would try and make this data agreement very broad and just say that, you know, we can use your data for whatever purposes that we want. Um, and nobody was challenging them at the time. And they hadn't even really considered um, perhaps the negative reasons of, of being able to do anything they want with this data. I think they were just trying to maintain flexibility into the future. Um, but then, you know, down the track, as, as they sort of enabled APIs and, and access for, for good reasons and bad, like, like research into mental health, for example, was a, was a way that um, third parties were using Facebook data to, um, to sort of leverage their research. Uh, there, there became a lot of open questions around, you know, what should we be using this data for? What is reasonable? Um, and ultimately, Facebook, I think, in 2014, sort of turned off a lot of those pipes for access to their data. Um, but just trying to extrapolate, um, you know, what are the privacy uh, requirements around this data? How should I be using this? You know, if I was to expose all of this to, to the users, would they be comfortable, for example? Uh, would I be comfortable in the way this is going to be used? Um, if I'm not at the business anymore, how might this data be used? Are the types of questions that you know, might apply to, to data privacy, to security, for example? They're great questions um, that 
definitely will help uh, PMs thinking about, you know, what, what they're working on and, and the impact. And, and you touched upon data a fair bit there. And that leads me on to Palantir. It's an analytics company. They've been in the news recently. You, you mentioned that they thought about impact and consequences quite, quite deeply. Tell us a little bit about Palantir. You know, what do they do? Who are they? Sure. So Palantir is an enterprise data analytics company, but they really started with a focus early on on government. Uh, So this is uh, law enforcement, Department of Defense uh, and intelligence agencies. And it was really about the uh, appropriate use of data to understand um, sinister activity, for example, looking into criminal investigations um, to better understand, you know, threats to national security and, and those types of things. Now, this is uh, deeply important work, but also has, you know, comes back to the exact same questions around appropriate use of data, security, and privacy. And I think one of the reasons that Palantir was actually founded was because, you know, after events like 9/11 um, in 2001, uh, there was sort of these blanket rules created by government to say we we must be able to access all data. We're going to be able to do whatever we want with it. You know, national security is the most important thing, and they didn't necessarily. Uh, have the tools that were going to make them particularly um, trustworthy in the way that that data was going to be utilised. Um, now, the the intent was was fair, uh, national security, um, but the considerations of privacy were sort of swept aside and the technology wasn't available to even help tread the line between uh, public security and privacy. And so Valentia, right from the beginning, was not just thinking about how can we create this analytic software to... Um, to sort of identify and resolve these threats, but how can we do it in a way that is cognizant of uh, the importance and the, of the security of the data um, and the privacy of the data and how that data should actually be utilised? And so they sort of took these, these two points with um, equal weighting um, into the development of their product from the beginning. Fantastic. And, and, you know, just I'm fascinated and, and captivated by data and privacy. And where is that line? Where's the comfortable line that we can all, all sit? And, you know, even recently in Australia with the, with the COVID app, you know, it was debated so much. And I won't ask you how you felt about it. Um, but, you know, it's where is that comfortable line? And um, are we getting to the point where we're going too far potentially with, with data privacy? Do we need to pull back? Is it safe to keep going? Or what, what do you think about uh, finding that, that comfortable line? Yeah, I think actually um, the, the line is going to evolve as well. I mean, I think like just you know, having been at Palantir for, for over a decade, you could see sort of the, the, the changes in public sentiment around um, security uh, versus privacy. And, and that was sort of weighted differently. And there's a lot of, um, you know, questions as the, as the sort of government administration changes in the United States, you know, that sort of changes people's opinions as well, for example. Um, and so I think the line is going to evolve. I think actually being able to be prepared for those evolutions is one of the most important things. Data integration, um, understanding what data is out there, um, storing that data in an appropriate way is all things we can think about today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as we need to leverage those data, that data, can we be very precise about what data we actually need um, and not taking the data we don't need? Mm-hmm. Um, can we be, be very accountable about what data we're actually going to access and sort of let people know? Um, can we create mechanisms for people to sort of opt into or opt out of that data access very quickly? 
Can they do that into the future? Where is this data going to be stored today? Is it going to be proliferated elsewhere or can we keep it in the one spot so that we can turn on and off these levers as we need to so that we can be accountable, so that we can um, release this information if requested? Those are the types of questions we wanted to, to be asking and none of them involve, is it okay to store a name? Is it okay to store address? Is it okay to store a phone number? Instead, it's just around sort of creating the, the mechanisms that allow us to make the right decisions in an accountable way in the right circumstances. Absolutely. I'm a bit like, you know, working in technology, but I'm not sure I really love technology sometimes and, and, and where, it's, where it's going. I had a conversation with um, head of security for one of the big four banks. And, you know, after spending 30 minutes over a coffee last year kind of walked out wanting to close down all my social media profiles and uh, completely yeah get rid of my phone and uh, be off the grid so to speak yeah I look I, I would love to try and find the right the right balance there for um you know for, for society to sort of interact uh, in a really um comfortable way with technology like obviously we all have different opinions about um but our, our comfort level with these types of technologies I think inevitably innovation is going to keep driving us forward, uh, whether we like it or not. And so, um, you know, trying to do that in, a, in the most sort of um, thoughtful and controlled way we can is probably the, the best way to approach it. Absolutely. So, Luke Shannon, you've had such an inter- interesting career to date. What's been your greatest achievement professionally? It's really I think being part of something that, that has a significant impact and, and, and feeling like you've actually contributed to something, something really major. I think, um, you know, Palantir has, um, well, you know, they're, they're now about to IPO and I think they're already about a 16 year old company. So they've, you know, they've sort of had a long, a long tenure um, and they've gone through a lot of these sort of really interesting questions about what does it mean to work for government? What does it mean to work in national security? What does it mean to be the custodians of very important data and sort of the privacy requirements uh, behind that? And, you know, some of these questions are not easy to answer, but I am deeply proud of the work that they have um, actually achieved. Um, Certainly for the decade that I was there, um, I really felt like we not only built a great business, but we had a really positive impact in the work that we were doing. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily call this a personal achievement, but a sort of collective achievement where I really felt like you know, this was a startup that I was part of. This wasn't just about, you know, getting a job and then moving to the next job, um, but actually really feeling bought into the business that you're working with and sort of collectively having a really significant impact. I love that. And that really brings it back to the why again. And like you said, it's not just a job. You're, you're part of that why, and uh, which is much bigger than, than any individual. So, look, Shannon, you've shared so much with us today. How can we stay connected with you going forward? Good question. I'd love to. I'd love to stay connected. I'm thinking about a, a an Australian startup that has a wonderfully simple product called Linktree. Um, my Linktree handle is s Scott s for Shannon and then Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, and find some links to my, for example, blog post and LinkedIn profile there. So um, check out Linktree and and my profile as well. Fantastic. And we will include your Linktree and your LinkedIn link um, in our show notes so people can access that easily. Okay, so before I let you go, what would be one piece of advice you have for product managers? Look, I think whatever role you go into, make sure you align with the business. 
make sure it's about what you what what your goals are and theirs. And, and I think this probably means um, it's going to be a startup that is going to have a growing impact as as your career grows as well. Um, you know, perhaps it is um, a startup or a company working in in um, sort of green energy, for example, and you're really passionate about um, environmental. Uh, uh, the environmental industry, for example, um, but I think just making sure that you know you're passionate about this, you you align with the business, and and that will really drive um, your ability to sort of do wonderful work and and have a really great career out of it. Love it, Shannon. It's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jade. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge, brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.